Good evening, Church at 6.30. Oh, I can see you're awake. I can hear you're awake. Not quite. Wonderful to be with you. My name's Greg. I'm one of the ministers here at OEC. You look after Church at 4, among other things. And it's my great privilege to be opening God's Word with you. Um, so please keep your Bibles open at that passage. We're going to be looking at the whole of Chapter 5. Um, on your handouts, there's an outline of the talk. You can follow along. Um, take notes if you find that a helpful thing to do. I'm not sure about you, but I love watching the Olympic Games, and if you're like me, then this last 12 months has been fantastic, hasn't it? So we had the Summer Olympics, middle of last year, Winter Olympics just finished. I love watching sports that I've never watched any other time, and just seeing what we humans are capable of, like snowboard halfpipe, like seriously, how much air can someone get and still land safely on a concrete pipe with some snow on it. It's ridiculous. The moguls, that's a weird one to watch, isn't it? Just how much can a human knee take? That seems to be what that one's about. Um, and, and why don't we do this? Why don't we slide down a pipe head first at 130 k's an hour and see if we can beat the last person by 0.05 of a second. That's a great idea, isn't it? Let's call it skeleton. I think that's a brilliant name for that one. It's a spectator sport, I think. Um, Winter Olympics, it's, it's the adrenaline games, isn't it? It's just fantastic. The Summer Olympics are trying to keep pace as well. And so they've got BMX freestyle now, and they've got sports climbing. But then let's go another level again. Let's try Paralympics, winter and summer. What those men and women do is just stunning, isn't it? Like wheelchair rugby makes ice hockey look lame. Like it's, it's fantastic. Goalball, which is a bit like blind soccer. And then there's the... Um, winter Paralympics like ice hockey, para ice hockey, and, and alpine skiing, the sitting super G, like that's just phenomenal what these guys do. But the Olympics, it's a celebration of human power, of, of human speed and achievement, pushing those boundaries, what can we do? And the message you keep hearing as you watch the Olympics is you never know what you're capable of unless you try. You're capable of anything you can put your mind to. Don't let the obstacles define you. Uh, the closing ceremony was filled with messages about human achievement and human belief and human togetherness. Uh, in the ceremony, there was a Chinese knot. It's a symbol of Olympic international togetherness. The message was that if we believe in each other, if we're stronger together, then who knows what we can do. So much. And that just echoed again and again. Uh, the Olympic uh, closing ceremony had fireworks exploding with the message, one world, one family. And as humans, as we work together, we are capable of so much, aren't we? We create so much. We overcome so much. And the world tells itself human is king. But as Ed has already shared with us, king human is a mirage. It's a facade, a deception. As humans, we are flawed, we are broken, we are trapped, corrupt, destructive. You just need to look at the other news past the Olympics to see that illustrated again and again, the mess of world politics that we've seen this week unfolding with the reality of war, the brokenness of humanity illustrated again and again in destruction and tragedy and evil and selfishness. We see it in our news feeds, we see it in those around us, and we look closely at home, we see it in ourselves. We're all broken. 
We might tell ourselves we've got this, we can conquer, we can achieve, we can break through, but the reality is there's so much we cannot conquer. So much we have no control over. So much we're simply at the mercy of the mess we've made of our world and we find ourselves in. And so every now and then things happen that just shatter the illusion of king human. The COVID pandemic has done that, continues to do that. Tragedy does that. The shocking evil of others that we see does that. Debilitating illness does it, but nothing does it more than death. Death shatters once and for all the illusion that we're in control. The finality of death, the inescapable power of death, the wrongness of death. Death speaks clearly and plainly, we have not got this. We are broken. We are weak. We are powerless. King, human, dies. And the illusion of control vanishes. So what do we do when we're faced with that shocking reality that King Human is dead, that we're not in control, that we haven't got this? What do we do? Do we wait until that moment passes and retreat back into this illusion that we are in control? Let's just pretend again. Do we despair of hope and of life? Do we throw up our hands and say, oh, well, let's just enjoy what we can while we can? Or do we come begging to the one who has the power to defeat death. Let's pray that we will do the hard work of listening again as we come before God and his word. Won't you join me? Father, thank you for the wonder of your word. Thank you that you have spoken in the person of your son. And we thank you for this part of your word in front of us. Help us to listen with hearts that want to hear, that want to be changed. Encourage us, rebuke us, challenge us, change us. By your spirit we pray. Amen. So last week, we left Jesus in a boat with his disciples, a boat that had just stopped rocking after a storm that was big enough to scare seasoned fishermen, was stopped, stilled, silenced by Jesus. And before we jump into chapter 5, I want to jump back into the boat with the disciples again because what Jesus says in these verses is really quite stunning. Have a look at verse 40 of chapter 4. Have you have your Bibles open? Verse 40, chapter 4, Jesus just calmed the storm. The waves that were threatening to engulf the boat are just lapping now quietly at the side. And Jesus says to the disciples, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? It's a bit of a weird question, isn't it? What sort of question is that? Who wouldn't be afraid if they were in a boat and felt like they were about to die? If you were there, if I was there, I'd be afraid. Of course the disciples were, but notice what Jesus contrasts in this question. He, he puts the different responses of fear and faith as opposites. That's what he does. Don't be afraid, believe. Instead of being fearful, they need to trust Jesus. And this is not the last time Jesus will put those as opposites. We'll see that in chapter 5 again. So instead of fearing for their life... Fearing the distinct possibility of dying, they should have had faith. It sounds a bit like saying to someone who's just got the crushing news of stage four cancer, don't worry, just believe. Sounds like just an empty platitude, doesn't it? But it's not an empty platitude because Jesus is no ordinary person. He's just calmed the storm. These are not empty words. 
He has the power. And they should trust him. The faith Jesus wants the disciples to have is a faith grounded in the certain hope that he has the power to meet anything that might come against them. And they should already know that. And Jesus wants them to work out who he is and ask that question again. So Jesus and the disciples arrive on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. In the beginning of chapter 5, tired after a night battling a storm, still in a sense terrified, confused after witnessing the full power of Jesus, the divine king, they step out of the boat and immediately they are confronted by a man deranged, possessed, stumbling down the hill from the tombs towards them. What do you have to do with me? Jesus, son of the most high God, I beg you before God, don't torment me. This man possessed by demons is in a terrible state. Mark gives us insight into the power of the unclean spirits, the evil spirits that impact on this suffering man, this lonely suffering man and what he's had to endure. He's overpowered by these demons. The people of the town ship around are powerless to control the evil in their midst. They chain the man, they shackle the man, but nothing can restrain him. They're scared of this man, but there's nothing they can do. The man is forced to live among the dead, in the tombs, outside the town, away from people, desperately alone, calling out, desperately crying out, cutting himself with stones. It's a terrible picture of a man alone, desperate, controlled, unable to do anything to save himself, to bring restoration to himself. The demons recognise the power and authority of Jesus and they beg Jesus. They're terrified of him. Unlike the disciples, unlike the Pharisees, unlike the crowds, the demons know exactly who Jesus is and know his power and authority. Jesus gives the begging demons what they want, sends the demons into a herd of pigs. And as soon as they enter the pigs, we see just... The nature of these demons that had controlled this man, the herd of pigs, 2,000 strong, run helter-skelter down the hill and kill themselves. These demons were bent on destruction and death. And the people from the town, they hear what has happened and they come running to the scene and what they witness stuns them, shocks them. The man they could not control, the man they had feared, the man they had cast out, rejected, naked into the tombs, is sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed, silent, listening in his right mind, saved from the power of evil that they had no way of controlling. And what's their response? It's a really interesting response. Like the disciples in the boat, they are terrified of this man Jesus. They're terrified of this man who has power over what they have no control over. And what do they do? They beg Jesus to leave. They prefer things the way that they were than the way that they are. They prefer the presence of evil to the presence of Jesus. This is the first of the three things that we see that expose the powerlessness of King Human in the face of evil. Man has no power. Man has no control, we're helpless, we're hopeless in the face of evil. 
And our history is littered with the evidence of this. Evil men like Pol Pot and Hitler and Stalin, the evil regimes and the military forces in the Sudan, what we've seen unfolding this week, the horror of what's been done in the name of progress. Every day we're reminded on our news feeds of the power of evil, the wicked things that we do one to another. And within ourselves, if we're honest, we see this truth in our own hearts, don't we? The evil of the human heart and our ability to excuse the evil that we do, the way that we treat others, the hurt we cause, and the lies and excuses we tell ourselves to say it's okay. As a man who struggled to control my own anger, I know firsthand the reality of the evil lurking in my own heart and my own powerlessness to make lasting change. And it's only as I come begging to Jesus, it's only as I did that, I was able to find hope and motivation to change. And if we all look into ourselves, we see the same thing. might be a different thing, but we all struggle. And we can't change ourselves. There's so much to cover today, so much to say on this passage alone, but let's push on, let's move on to the second reality of life that exposes the powerlessness of King Human. Jesus and the disciples, they get back in the boats and they cross to the other side. The disciples are relieved, no storm this time, they just get to the other side. Nice, calm, pleasant boat ride across the Sea of Galilee. They land on the Jewish side. Uh, and as we've seen again and again, uh, the gossip goes out amongst the, amongst the, in the area and the crowd gathers again. Mark then introduces us to another man, desperate to see Jesus, desperate to get his help. Jairus, a religious leader. Now, when we hear religious leader at this point in Mark's gospel, we're thinking baddie, aren't we? We're thinking someone who's not on Jesus' side, comes questioning, trying to pin him down in some way, not Jairus. He doesn't come questioning. He's not against Jesus. He's actually desperate for his help. You can imagine Jairus in desperation with his daughter sick, hoping that Jesus might come to town, hoping that if he does, then maybe Jesus could heal his daughter. Hears that Jesus is in town and runs to get him and bring him to his place that his daughter might live. He's like the paralytic. He's like the demon-possessed. He's like the leper. He can't save himself. He cannot save his child. Knowing that Jesus can, he comes asking for salvation. My little daughter is dying. Come lay your hands on her so she can get well and live. The man's in a rush to get Jesus to his place. But the crowd is pressing against him. They know Jesus' power to heal. They want to see what's going to happen. And they all jostle their way along the street to Jairus' house. But then Mark stops us on the road. And we get introduced to someone else, another desperate person who's heard that Jesus is in town, a woman, and she comes looking for him. Mark lets us in on the depth of her suffering too. She's been bleeding for 12 years. 12 years. If you're bleeding, you're unclean like a leper. So she's alone. Anyone who touches her becomes unclean. She's unable to go to the temple, unable to go to the synagogue. That's been 12 long years, separated from others, separated from God. But her suffering continues. She had money. She doesn't have any anymore. Why? Because she spent it all on doctors. And they don't make it better. They make it worse. 
and the treatments that she would have endured would have included things like shock, pe uh, shock therapy and, and medicines that would have only made her worse and who knows what they did to her. And when she hears of Jesus, she has hope, desperate hope, that she could be healed. Hope more certain than doctors that she wasted her money on. Hope grounded in the power and authority of Jesus. And then Mark gets us notice even closer to this poor and desperate woman, we get to hear what she's saying to herself. She says to herself, if I just touch his clothes, that will be enough. That'll heal me. And so in desperation, she breaks all the unclean protocols. She enters into the crowd, gets close enough to Jesus, touches his clothes, and instantly she realizes she's restored. The bleeding stops. She's whole within herself. At the same time, Jesus realizes that power has gone out from him, that he has healed someone, and so he turns to the crowd and asks his disciples, who touched my clothes? The disciples are thinking, what a stupid question that is. Everybody's touched your clothes, Jesus. This is a crowd all jostling. What a strange question to ask, but he continues to look. And the woman who was sought to hide in the crowd comes and falls down before Jesus lets him know everything that's happened and the healing that she's experienced. And then Jesus addresses her so beautifully as, Daughter, daughter, your faith has saved you, he says. Notice what he says. He says, your faith has saved you. Not just healed you, saved you. It's not the, it's not the first time that salvation word has come up in this passage in verse 23 when Jairus says that if Jesus touches his daughter she would get well the word actually is that she would be saved and we see it again also verse 28 it's there her healing all these things are salvation events and Jesus tells her to go in peace the peace of knowing she's been restored the peace of knowing that her saviour has saved her chronic Debilitating, untreatable illness is consuming. The peace, that's right, everything stops when you're told that of, of the disease that's racking your body in some way and the uncertainty that's coming in the, in the days, in the weeks, in the months ahead. Faced with incurable illness, chronic illness, the mirage that is king human just disappears. While our doctors, our hospitals are amazing and they can cure so much, with many more advances still to come, chronic illness is a warning that all of us will die. That things aren't right. Death is coming. Illness is a reminder to that this world, that our bodies that are broken, are cursed, are suffering decay. There's a number of you here who were here when I became terribly ill at the end of 2017. Um, the specialists were uncertain about what was going on. I dropped from 83 kilos to 58 kilos in a month. Two and a half months in and out of hospital. And when it hits you, if you've ever been there, it just hits you that you're not in control. You really aren't. The doctors didn't know what was going on. The illusion of my control over my life was shattered in a moment by this illness. There was nothing I could do. By the grace of God, I came through that with the help of doctors and was healed. All illness is a reminder that we're not in control, that there's nothing we can do to hold off the power of death. It's coming, and we all need to face that truth. 
Let's get back to Mark chapter 5, into the story again, because Jairus is waiting. While Jesus is speaking, Jairus is just sitting there getting impatient, isn't he? Just thinking, we just need to get to my house and save my daughter. Can't this wait? My daughter's dying. And Jesus doesn't finish speaking with the woman. And people come from Jairus's house with the terrible news. It's too late. She's dead. They all know Jesus can heal the sick. They've just witnessed this. I've heard countless stories. But death, I mean, who could seriously reverse that? That's final. It's done. The power and horror of death. What can Jesus do about that? Walk away, Jairus. Go home. Start planning the funeral. It's over. Jesus heard what the group who had come from Jairus' house had said, and before Jairus could even begin to wail in grief and loss, Jesus looked at the synagogue ruler and he said to him, don't be afraid, just believe. I'd love to know what went through Jairus' mind when Jesus said that. Was it fear? Was it confusion? Was it anger? We're not told. It's a, it's a terrible thing for Jesus to say in the face of death, isn't it? Unless you can do something about it. Unless you can reverse it. Jesus leaves the crowd behind, only admits Peter, James and John to follow Jairus to Jairus' house. When they arrive, they're confronted by the raw reality of grief. Deep grief and sorrow. People wailing over the 12-year-old girl that is dead in the room in the house. Jesus sends the whole grieving party outside. He brings Jairus and his wife inside together with Peter, James and John. And they enter the room and the child is lying motionless. Breathless, pale, dead. Jesus speaks to a lifeless corpse, telling her to get up. And just like the demons, just like the storm, death must obey the word of Jesus. It has no option but to obey the command of the life giver, and the power of death is vanquished. The girl breathes, opens her eyes and sits up. Jairus and his wife are just jaw on the floor. They cannot believe what they've just seen, but they have to. The daughter is now alive. Jesus can raise the dead. That's a game changer. Everything changes from this point. The calming of the storm, the casting out of the legion of demons, the healing of the bleeding woman were all pointing to this power of Jesus over death itself. Death, the great enemy, the great curse, king human, powerless against it, powerless to turn it back. We can stave it off for a time, but it always wins, but not with Jesus. Not over King Jesus. Evil, illness, finally death, all in chapter 5, all destroying the mirage of King Human, all dispelling this myth that we're in control because we're not. And when we come face to face with that reality that we're not in control, what do we do? Do we just shake in fear and despair, unable to cope with horror, the reality of our own situation collapsing under the weight of hopelessness? What would Jesus say if we reacted like that? Don't be afraid. Just believe. 
When we're faced with that reality, maybe we retreat back into the illusion of our control, of king human. Think back to the people living near the demon-possessed man. They were unable to control the presence of evil among them, but when Jesus comes and they witness his power, they're even more scared of him. In fact, they begged him to leave. They preferred life with the evil they could not control to the presence of Jesus. Do we prefer our illusion of control? over facing the reality of our own helplessness, our desperate need of King Jesus. Are we like them? In the face of death, so often we hear in our society, what we hear, we hear platitudes, like they're in a better place, or they're looking down on us, or they're having a beer with a big one. Platitudes, wishful thinking, with no basis, with no certainty in the face of death. Then we come through that time, and then we go back to our normal lives, pretending death has no sting, putting death behind closed doors, pretending again we're in control. That's what most of our society does. How should we respond? Well, we should come begging to Jesus. Begging to him, fully aware we cannot save ourselves, fully aware we need him. Did you notice through the chapter how many people came begging to Jesus? The disciples in the boat, the demon-possessed man, the bleeding woman, Jairus, all unable to do anything to save themselves, helpless, hopeless, without Jesus. Hopeless in the face of death, the power of the curse that we all find ourselves in, but they know Jesus can save, and so they come begging. And he can do more than even they could imagine. If you don't yet know and love the Lord Jesus, if you haven't yet realised your need to come begging to Jesus, please consider the stark reality of death. We are powerless, hopeless, cursed, broken, at the whim of death. Any day could be our day to face that. We don't know. The overwhelming power and finality of death. Let that reality shatter the illusion that you're in control, that you can save yourself, that you don't need Jesus. Instead, come back to him, begging for life. Jesus raised the girl back to life. Mark brought us into her room so that we could see it ourselves. Jesus rose from the dead himself. Death and curse could not hold him, could never hold him. He's destroyed the power and the curse of death, the penalty for our sin, for the way we treat God. What would Jesus say to us? Don't be afraid. Believe. Trust me. The only one who can give hope and life in the face of death, come begging to him, recognising you need him more than anything else. For those of us who do trust in Jesus, who love him, who've seen the wonder of salvation and found hope in the face of curse and death in King Jesus, do you still come begging to Jesus? Once you come to Jesus and have found life and forgiveness in him, that doesn't mean we become independent once we're saved. No, we still need Jesus just as much as we ever did. We need Jesus to continue his work in us, to change us, to change the way that we think, to change the way that we speak and live and serve and love. We still need Jesus to give us boldness to be a part of his great work, to bring this wonderful message of the power of Jesus to a world that's desperate for him, even if they don't realise it. To be a part of helping our brothers and sisters grow and love and serve him more. We need Jesus to help us do that. We still need Jesus to supply our every need. 
to bring us to our knees again and again when we fail and fall and sin again. We need to continue to come begging to Jesus. But, but begging like the man who was saved by the, from the power of the demons. Begging confident in his power, confident in his work, confident in his forgiveness, confident in his plan. Why don't we continue to come begging to Jesus? Do we start with a keen awareness of our need for Jesus and then return to self-confidence? Is that what we do as Christians? I think often that's what we do. I know I do. And that shows in my lack of prayerfulness. That shows in my lack of confession. It shows in my confidence in my own actions and words and ideas to grow his kingdom. It shows in a lack of consistency in sitting at Jesus' feet and listening to him by opening his words in the Bible and regularly being fed by him. Doing that hard work of listening. Did you notice with the man that was possessed by demons, when he was saved, what did he do? He sat at Jesus' feet in his right mind and begged Jesus that he might be able to go with him. He wanted to be with Jesus more than anything. He wanted to hear the life-giving word of Jesus more than anything and begged that he might be able to. King human is powerless in the face of death. Let's always come begging to King Jesus, confident in his compassion, confident in his power, confident in his love, confident in his forgiveness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in our self-deception, in the lies that we tell ourselves that we've got this, that you have sent your Son to reveal the reality of our brokenness, of the curse that we're under, the power of death and evil. Father, we thank you that you sent your Son to save us, because, man, we need it. Father, we pray that we would come begging to Jesus to find life and hope in the face of death. Those of us who have, help us to continue to come begging to Jesus, confident in your amazing love and forgiveness and compassion. Help us, Father, to do your work in this world and give us all that we need to serve you with our whole life, given you've saved us from everything we deserved. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.